Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Private Equity Masters is brought to you by PitchBook. Deciding where to allocate capital is challenging for even the most seasoned fund managers. The margin of returns between a good and great investment can be wide, especially in the private markets, so you need access to the best fund data available, and that's PitchBook. 93% of PitchBook's clients say their fund data is better than any other provider. PitchBook also publishes first-rate research on all aspects of investing in the private markets. You can explore PitchBook's data and research today by signing up to get free limited access. That's free limited access to the largest database of private market intel. To sign up, visit pitchbook.com slash capital allocators and see how PitchBook data can help give you that extra edge. Private Equity Masters is also brought to you by ILPA, the Institutional Limited Partners Association. ILPA is dedicated to engaging, empowering, and connecting limited partners to maximize their performance on an individual, institutional, and collective basis. It also hosts Voices of Private Equity, a podcast featuring leading voices from private markets that delves into the most pressing issues facing investors today. In its first season, the podcast held candid conversations that revealed each guest's personal journey in the industry. Rate, review, and subscribe to Voices of Private Equity today. Today's show is sponsored by iConnections. iConnections' software platform seamlessly connects managers and allocators for virtual meetings, giving managers the ability to subscribe and share information with allocators who can efficiently select and meet managers all on one platform. The scalable technology powering iConnections can be used for bespoke events by managers, allocators, and service providers. Visit iConnections.io to learn more. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocators.com. Over the last decade or two, no asset class has generated as much interest and investment dollar returns as private equity. This eight-part miniseries, Private Equity Masters, is a set of conversations with some of the longtime leaders in the space. We'll hear their stories, those of their firms, and their perspectives on this all-important area of the capital markets. My guest on the seventh episode of Private Equity Masters is Orlando Bravo, a founder and managing partner of Toma Bravo, a private equity firm focused on software and technology companies with over $78 billion in assets under management. Among his many accolades, 
Forbes named Orlando Wall Street's best dealmaker in 2019. Our conversation covers Orlando's background, early investment lessons, and approach around management, analytics, and collaborative culture. We then turn to Toma Bravo's investment philosophy, team structure, work with portfolio companies, exit strategy, and future. And we close with Orlando's thoughts on SPACs, valuations, and philanthropy. Before we get going, I wanted to let you know that we're enrolling the first cohort of Capital Allocators University, a live online course that starts on September 21st. Rahul Mudgal and I put together a course to help train investment professionals on the skills they need to succeed at the most senior levels of their organizations, but that aren't typically taught in investment curriculum. We'll be joined by an all-star cast of past guests on the show to help you learn foundational skills like time management and public speaking, and value-added ones like decision-making and networking. Hop on the website and click University in the menu to learn more. Please enjoy my conversation with Orlando Bravo. Orlando, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Ted. Well, I thought it would be fun to start back on the tennis court. And why don't you take me through that part of your life? Man, that part of my life was really hard. And I'm so grateful for it because to me, it was what gave me every opportunity that I have now. I started playing tennis young. And the reason I started playing is I I grew up in a small town in Puerto Rico, Mayaguez. And when I was about eight years old, on a mini vacation, my mom took me to watch this exhibition match in San Juan. And Vita Sterilitis was playing in it. I'm sure you remember him. And my mom and I thought, this is so, what a beautiful sport. And next weekend, I started taking lessons. There were two courts in my hometown. And I started taking lessons, started playing, and went over to play my first tournament in San Juan. And one of the most influential people in my life, my tennis coach, Antonio Ortiz, a phenomenal player. He played at Georgia, got to the finals of the Orange Bowl when he was young. He took me under his wing and started teaching me on the weekends. And that's when I started traveling. Went to Venezuela. That was the first place I went to outside of Puerto Rico and played this incredible tournament there. Met Jim Courier through playing a tennis tournament in Miami where he killed me in the finals. (laughs) But, you know, it taught me adventure, travel, learning how to lose and cope with it, and correlating really hard work with having a chance at success. And it was a great part of my life. Why don't we... Fast forward through your coming out of school, how did you first get interested in what became private equity? It's so funny. Tennis gave me the chance to then go to college and to go to Brown and then get into what I call this community of people that do investing and are in private equity. But at Brown, I didn't know what investment banking was. And certainly, I had no idea what private equity was. And my senior year, actually, towards the end of the year, I was going to go to law school. That's what you kind of do, I guess, if if you're not sure of a job opportunity. And I had this really worldly friend that told me, the investment banks are here. They're recruiting. And I put your name down on a list, right? There's no internet, no phone. So you had to sign up. You remember that, Ted, from Yale. You literally put it on... uh, on the door and your time slot is 2 p.m. And I go, well, what is this? What do I need to do? He explained (laughs) what investment banking was and he told me just buy some wingtip shoes. So he and I went and bought in a secondhand store some wingtip shoes, wore a tie and I got a job. And I was thinking about it and it's like, well, I get to work on Wall Street and make money and live in New York City, let's do it. And then when I was there joining that community, I got to come in close touch with some private equity firms on a deal that I was the junior person on. And I was really early on fascinated by the fact that two or three people in an office could buy a multinational corporation that didn't even have a company, didn't have anything. 
and they seemed smarter, better negotiators, and incredibly entrepreneurial. And I said, wow, I'm going to look into this. How would you compare the time and hard work from your tennis days to the notorious time and hard work as an investment banker? Wow. I would say that the tennis work is much harder. It really prepares you for that. You feel like you can take anything on the work front. But what investment banking, that those all-nighters and getting assignments really late, is kind of a bit mean. <laughs> Tennis is harder, but investment banker was meaner as an analyst. So take me through to your early experiences in private equity. Look, my early experiences in private equity were not good. I joined my partner now and my mentor, Carl Toma, when he formed his own firm called Toma Cressy at the time. And I was based in the San Francisco office. We had three people in the office. And he gave me, very early, lots of responsibility, lots of authority. And I wanted to do tech. It was before the dot-com bubble burst in 2000. And we started doing these technology services deals. And I did three deals, and the three of them failed. They didn't do well. All three. It was like back to back to back. And it's almost like, you know, if you're making bets, <laughs> that's pretty unlucky. Anybody else could do better than that. And I thought that that was going to be the end of it. Uh, I wasn't any good at it. I wasn't taking the right risks. Maybe I wasn't understanding something. And Carl told me, gave me another chance. He said, you can make lots of mistakes, just don't make the same ones again. And what we were doing, what I was doing that was wrong is I was trying to chase the venture community into doing really venture-type investing, which it's not in my makeup and certainly was not the type of risk that the firm, a buyout firm, would take. So we changed that. And I got another chance, and then we got into software. So if you had all that autonomy at a relatively early age, how did you start to learn the right way to do deals? On the one hand... I feel that I haven't done anything by myself. And I'm very clear on that. I had two key mentors, Carl Toma, who really started then working with me, teaching me the values of what's a good business, what's good management, what's a good partnership. How do you talk to people? How do you do a deal? How open are you? Great business ethics. And then at the same time, I had probably the best operational mentor anybody could have, Marcel Bernard, who did the first software deal with me as the chairman of the company and then became the chairman of our operating committee. What I credit myself with doing right is that I really listened to them. I took it all in. Like They would tell me something and it's not like, well, I'm going to kind of do it my way and that may be what happened in the 70s or 60s, and that's not the world anymore. No, I really, really listened. And the more I would listen, the more time they would spend with me. That's the thing about managing up as well. The more mentorship I would get because they're there to help people. You started doing these tech service deals, and then you worked your way, obviously, into software. How did that inflection take place? With a lot of help and mentorship, I went to do the opposite of what I was doing investing-wise, right? Instead of investing in how many employees can you add and how quickly, because that's where these businesses were valued, some of them, before the bubble burst, I went to do value investing in established companies rather than new companies with existing management instead of taking new management and putting them in a venture situation. It was literally the opposite investing philosophy from what I just described. Where we were fortunate is I did want to stay in tech. And one of the reasons I wanted to be in tech is not necessarily the passion for technology or the engineering, because I'm not an engineer, is I thought the space was not taken. I thought there was a lot of opportunity in the space and lots of opportunity for young people lots of creativity. It just felt good from that standpoint. And it gave me a white space to be able to work in. 
where we were lucky was when the dot-com bubble burst, our theory was, well, and we went to the partnership, you can buy recurring revenues in software less expensively than in any other category that Toma Cressy or Golder Toma has looked at. Transaction processing, media, radio in the days, outdoor advertising. And they said, yeah, that seems right. So that part of it, I had a lot of backing for. What was your first big success? The first software deal. And I remember that like it was yesterday because it wasn't the financial success of it. It's how hard we worked and how meaningful from a personal standpoint it was. We were able to take a company private in Yardley, Pennsylvania. Profit 21 was the name. It's a software company that ran the business of distributors. So they did all the customer entry, warehousing, logistics, pricing of a small mid-market distributor using their technology. We took it private and we backed the existing management team of the company. Chuck Boyle was the CEO. And this team had never really made much uh, margin in their business, so they had never been profitable, but they had good values. They were never big money losers either. They had 2,000 customers at the time, and I remember in our last diligence meeting, we were looking for some co-investors in the deal, and we were there with one of our co-investors. And we asked the head of sales, you missed numbers this year. How did you do last year? Kind of looked around and said, no, we missed those bookings as well. And it's like, well, how did you do the year before that? We missed those numbers as well. And finally, I asked him, his name is Doug Levin. Doug, have you ever made your numbers? And there was this awkward pause in the meeting. He looked around like he was counting the years. And he said, nope, never. I've never made them. <laughs> And there was a silence in the room. It was like the most depressing thing. And we went outside and my partner, Carl Toma, who was with me at the meeting, said, that's not fatal. It's this deal still alive. We met Marcel Bernard because now we needed to help run the company. And Marcel worked so closely with the same team as had never made numbers before from a top line standpoint. And they made it not only into a really profitable company, did six add-on acquisitions, but consistent bookings performance. And when we sold the deal and re realized a great rate of return, it was how appreciative Chuck, Doug, and management were that we gave him a chance and we put him in a position to succeed. And Marcel Bernard always taught me, remember, everybody always needs somebody else to learn from. And that was like, that really started our investing philosophy in software. What were those key lessons that Marcel Bernard brought to them so that a team that had never been able to make their targets all of a sudden could perform? I define it as, or summarize it, into an analytical approach to decision-making. He was able to take the company and help split it into its component parts, assign direct revenue, direct cost with no allocation to each, call it mini business unit or functional area. And he helped Chuck, the CEO, delegate authority and responsibility to each of his managers that then collaborated together, but so that they could improve each area of their business. With Doug in sales, sales is an area that is run a lot by gut feel. I like this quote-unquote guy, or I have a gut feel that momentum is going up or this, or that, but it's not run mathematically. And he put together a mathematical approach to running sales over assignment of quotas, territory management, how many people do you really need to hit your numbers two years from now because it takes time to ramp. And we call that the quota allocation model. And with those tools and that visibility by management, they could then see where they were going and it worked. And how do you think about this question of keeping a management that may be underperforming and delivering them these types of tools compared to deciding that the management team might not be the right one to take the business where you want it to go? Our philosophy is to really stay with the existing management because 
we highly value the knowledge of the business that they have that we don't have. Even if we do great diligence, we will never come up to speed fully on where they're at. Secondly, they do have the following of their employees. So whatever leadership actions they take, they have that trust. And third, they have the history and knowledge of their customers. If we can marry that with our analytical approach to decision-making and our cultural approach of inspiring them to do some things differently, that's the best. Now we say, and you asked me about the art of the business here, we say that as long as people are making positive progress, you stay the course, even if that progress may not be fast enough for your investment case because people move at different speeds. There are some management teams that struggle for six months to join in the partnership, and then you get a step function in terms of how they're doing things. Others slowly ramp up over two years, and then they do it. Sometimes you need an event that's a catalyst. For example, sometimes you need an add-on acquisition that really worked, where it was integrated properly and where they appreciated what we brought to the table as well, because we need their buy-in also. Sometimes it takes them to miss numbers, to realign their business with reality. So sometimes it's good that they miss numbers because it gives us an opening to have them listen to us and become more open-minded. In each of those paths, you can imagine a different type of interaction, right? Things are going well, you bring in a successful acquisition, things are going less well, they miss numbers. You mentioned culture, and I know that that's something that's incredibly important to you, both within Toma Bravo and your portfolio companies. Can you talk me through, like, what do you mean by that, and how do you bring that into both your firm and your investments? What I mean by that is, what is the shared mission and sense of purpose that creates a community in a company. It's what is it that holds these individuals together? Why do they do things a certain way? And culture, I know people are talking a lot about culture. It's really everything because technologies will change. Ways of doing deals will change. The tactics of private equity, the tactics of operations, that'll change. But if you have a strong identifiable culture that then gives you a core competency that is very difficult to copy because it comes from culture, you have it all. I think for our organization at Toma Bravo, what holds us together is our passion for doing innovation right, meaning profitably by measurement, by hitting numbers, by when an LP comes to visit us, what companies are on plan and not on plan. We're really focused on that and we feel almost embarrassed for defending companies that are not on plan and why that is. The way we talk to people is very similar, very open. We say it how it is and that serves us well. When you think about innovation, You started by saying you like these recurring revenue software businesses, embedded customers. It's, I don't want to say the antithesis of innovation, but it is a nice cash flow stream that you're figuring out how to improve. Where does innovation come in in these businesses? What a great question. Because software has changed dramatically since the first example I gave you and why we got into the space in the first place. And our tactics for software have changed dramatically as well with that change. Our culture has evolved from a tactical standpoint, but our philosophy is the same. Let me explain that. So yeah, we started because it was good value. You could buy these recurring existing customer bases where you're giving them good service, you're integral to their operations, and you could buy that for two times revenue. And you could make money by increasing pricing along with inflation, not shocking your customer, and running a more efficient operation. And if you did add-on acquisitions and became the number one in the space, that was even better. That's over. That has been over since 2005, and then you had the financial crisis, so maybe you could sneak in and do a couple of deals like that, but that's been over for 15 years. What happened was, instead of complaining about that being over, 
and saying valuations are too high, we're going to exit the space. See, that's where you can evolve if you have an open-minded culture and a risk-taking culture. Well, we said, well, look at this. The good news now is you have SaaS software. So therefore, since you can rent the product and deliver it through the cloud and everybody can be on the latest release, software will become ultimately the entire business of a company. So you had these starting in 2011, 2012, SaaS beginning to take over software, which meant that now your customers, you have 100% of their budget, theoretically, because it's an operating expense. You don't have 10% of their CapEx budget and you're competing for capital expenditures with other areas. If you have products and solutions that improve that customer's revenues or bottom line, they're going to buy it. They have budget room for it because it just improves their budget that year. So we then said, well, now that we have expertise in running software companies, these recurring revenues are even better. Let's invest in growth. And that's something that people quite don't understand yet about us because of our history. We are really growth investors in companies where you can add significant value to your product ongoing because you have to. If not, you'll be displaced by another SaaS solution. It's not as sticky as maintenance was because the customer hasn't made the capital expenditure. But at the same time, if you add a lot of value to your product, you can price that in and grow a lot faster. So walk me through those different aspects of your investment process. So let's first start with that inflection towards SaaS companies. What does your target acquisition look like today? There are three things. Give us very high quality of revenue. And we can walk through what that means. Secondly, give us a management team that we can work with. And all we need from working with is people that are open, people that care about numbers, and people that want to win. Go work with anybody. And then third, give us enough what we call our margin. Give us enough room to be able to improve operations so that we can earn an excess return because prices are so high now that without that, it's, it's very difficult. The typical deal will look like 500 million to a billion of recurring revenue, number one or number two player in a, an application space, cybersecurity space, or infrastructure software space, where we can then invest a lot behind sales and behind product and behind product management while running the business more efficiently. Why don't you go ahead and dive into what quality revenues mean? Give us good gross retention rates. And the industry is pretty familiar with that. Give us very high net retention rates. And there's so much analytical work that goes into this because these companies have many products, legacy and new, many regions, many go-to-market strategies, channel, direct, many types of customers, enterprise, mid-market, small and medium-sized business, many verticals potentially. So doing that work is really, uh, it's really scientific. And some people do a great job at it. Some people do a poor job at it. And you can make big mistakes. It's not as easy. These headline numbers that public investors talk about could be a bit murky because they also don't have the information, the raw data, uh, week by week or month by month. You also look at duration of bookings. These are total contract value, annual contract value, and how that distorts the net retention rates of companies. So when you get into the granularity of that data, I can imagine situations where it's not crystal clear, right? There might be certain products, certain regions that are doing better than others. How do you think about both the strength of the business you're going to buy and then how you'll fine tune that once you own it? Well, on that top line, you have to be able to explain why things are staying the same or why things are changing. And then you take that quantitative analysis and make sure that the qualitative is giving you the same answer. So, for example, if the customer references align well for why there's a net expansion in the customer base, is it because they're buying more seats? Is it because the cross-sell with other products are working? Is it because they're growing through other operations that the company has? It has to fit what the numbers are telling you. The same thing is in customer support. If you have very high gross renewal rates, and then you also are able to see in the operational data 
that most calls, the first call resolution time has remained really good and stable. It comes together. It also comes together with the quality of a product. If our engineering team is telling us, no, this product is really good because it's architected in a certain way. It runs very efficiently. There's very low downtime. There's very low bugs. Most of the customers are in the latest release or in the case of SaaS, they're on their latest release. Okay, great. Is that resulting in really high gross retention rates? It has to fit together. Then with the management team, I'm drawing a lot of parallels how people might think about you and your management team at Toma Bravo when they're thinking of investing. You mentioned they want to win. How do you test that degree to which someone wants to win? It goes back to a sense of purpose and a mission. Why do they care and why do they care so much? Is it something that they owe their organization and the people that have helped them and the next generation leadership? Is that it? That's a big one. That's a big one for me personally. Is it something in their background that they have something to prove all the time to themselves? Is it that they need external reaffirmation from their community of competitors and peers? What is it about it that really drives them? And if you can get to the bottom of that and people are doing something for a deeper reason, wow, you're in a great place. So I'm curious when you bring these factors together, how does your team make decisions? We work so collaboratively. Let me give you an example. We bought a great business from a private equity firm six years ago. And I'm friends with the chairman of that private equity firm. After we signed the deal, he gave me one of the best accolades that I passed on to my team. And they're a great firm. You know what he said? He said, your team is like a pack of wolves. You surrounded my company. You were talking to me, trying to inspire me to sign it and not talk to anybody else. And you knew exactly what was going on. Your partner had the CEO all over the CEO. Your principals and VPs were all over the banker, and you were all like a coordinated effort of surrounding us, this asset, and you didn't let us go anywhere else. He said, I told my team that I want you to be like a pack of wolves. That's collaboration, and that was coordination, and he was so nice to say that, and they're just a a great firm, but we make decisions by constant communication. So I may get a call from one of my partners, and I'm usually the secondary on deals, And he may just tell me something that he learned in an hour call with the CR management. And then we kind of review that, think about it, begin to make some judgments, and then continue that process. It's a very iterative, small decision-making process. Within the firm, how do you structure that pack of wolves on each deal? It's so great. We are lucky to be structured by many verticals. So we work, our philosophy is to work in very small project teams. Because when you do that, you give the associate on the deal, the VP on the deal, all the participants, a very broad job. And when you have broader jobs, you become a lot more creative. We believe that the individual should see everything on the investment. The financing, because the financing is coming out a certain way, the price may not be working. Or if the price is not working, you may need to reduce the cost more. Or you're taking more operating risk. Or there's there's creative solutions that you need to be figuring out all the time. Maybe can you model in and add an acquisition? Can you sign that before the deal's happening? So you kind of are trying to solve this problem of how do you price or win this deal by looking at everything around it. And we structure ourselves to get to the point by these small project teams are structured by software subsector. So we have managing partners that run the big verticals, applications, infrastructure, cybersecurity. But within those, we have teams that run healthcare software, financial technology software, individual identity in cyber. Those teams are responsible from originating the deal, knowing their community, knowing everybody in the space, as well as executing on the deal and serving on the board of those companies. When we went into COVID, that organization served us so well because everybody, when going remote, they knew exactly what their job was and what they needed to do. So once you've purchased a portfolio company, 
What's your playbook in this more modern world for software of how you work with the portfolio companies and their management teams? We onboard the company into our reporting package. That has our hundreds of metrics by division, functional area, and potentially business unit if the company has multiple business units. That takes about three months of work. Armed with that data, we're then able to separate the businesses so that managers that are reporting to CEO actually kind of get a promotion because they're really running businesses rather than cost areas or cost centers. So the person responsible for customer care, they'll have revenue as well as cost. So they'll have quite a bit of pricing influence and they start getting a lot more creative about how to do things to improve their renewal rates. That's a key thing we do. We then go into our playbook. We do monthly operating reviews from 8 a.m. to noon every month instead of these strategic board meetings. And in those ops reviews, we have all the direct reports of the CEO present together collaborating, and we go through each of those areas. A lot has been said about playbooks. We could implement thousands of metrics on these companies, but there's no time. Marcel Bernard used to say, if you try to get to all, you will get to none. So within our framework, we then figure out what are the three big things that will be really material to the company and that are the easiest to do and that can actually be executed by the culture that we inherited and this team, things that they care about. And let's try to make those three things work and prioritize. So as you go through the evolution of ownership of one of these businesses, you implement these three things, hopefully good things happen. There's probably three more then and three more after that. How do you go about distilling and sharing all of the lessons that you've learned on the operations of these somewhat comparable businesses across each other in your portfolio over time? Like a pack of wolves. It happens <laughs> every Monday in this great collaborative sharing environment. We get together every Monday, both as an investment team and with our operating partner group. And you see every couple of years, you see a big theme that gets rolled out through all the portfolio companies. At one point, it was how do we work with a channel? What are the best channel partner incentive programs? And how can those be modified to fit the needs of us, the manufacturer of product and as well as the distributor? But those themes kind of roll from one year to the next. Now, we do have 25 operating partners that work across all of these companies. So a lot of the sharing happens. I feel in our culture and our philosophy is have it happen at the project level. The more centralized you become, you're putting the monkey on your back and you don't want that. You want to delegate it all down. How do you think about holding period and exit strategy? So you own these businesses. There's a lot of ways you can improve them. They're great businesses. But for the most part, you're in a private equity structure, which requires an exit. How do you think about where you evolve and when you exit? We've gotten better at that. If there's one area of improvement and we've been watching it and getting better is how do we exit? Our average holding period has remained at 3.3 years. Even as deals have gotten a lot larger and valuations have gone up, it just hasn't changed. One of the reasons for that and one of our really smart limited partners about 15 years ago when he, we were in an advisory meeting, he mentioned this. He said, your value-added approach happens very quickly. You can tell very quickly how much value will be added to each company. And I thought that was so insightful because when you're backing existing management, you can go to work before you close the deal in that period between sign and close. When you have to change people, People need to learn the business. You need to recruit them. They recruit and then people that they like. And it takes a while to come together. That's a key reason for our average holding period. We can accomplish these three things or whatever priorities are very, very quickly at a company. Now, in hindsight, based on where software has gone, we should have held all the companies. 
And if we would have done that, we would have been much larger than SAP. And the returns, the multiples of money would have been just so much greater. We had to prove it and we had to sell to continue to deliver money back so that people could invest more with us. We continue to iterate on that. Now, our bias as well, I'll give you another one, has been as follows. When a strategic approaches you, look to sell because they won't approach you again. They'll either build the product internally or buy somebody else. And by backing existing management, if you can get the changes done early, you're more ready for that approach. Ellie May, we sold that 18 months after we bought it, but it was a different company 18 months after we bought it. And the buyer got a great deal and we got a great deal. It's really working for the buyer. SonicWall, we also sold after 18 months in cybersecurity. The company was a different company. How do you stay in touch with the businesses, the management teams of portfolio companies that you then exit afterwards, given that you're really still in the same ecosystem? It's such another great insightful question because what we have noticed is when we sell these businesses, if they're sold to private equity, we can track them. Whatever we did together, they continue to do for a very long period of time. So all that initial work that went into it, we have almost set these companies up to become private equity assets for long periods of time. We see them trading from one private equity firm to another, and everybody does well in it with the same team. We keep in touch with them as friends. We may buy a competitor. We may buy a company that partners with them, most likely. And at some point in their career, we actually get many of them to be operating partners at Tomo Bravo. And that's the best candidate because they've implemented our plan. We've made money together. They know us and we're not taking risk with anybody new. So I imagine this has come up in the past and I'm just kind of curious, have you ever had a business that you owned, bought and sold and then looked at down the road again? Yeah, we've done that. We had and have this company called Flexera and Flexera was a deal that we sold believe we sold it in around 2010 to Ontario teachers. We retained a small percentage of the company. The company did great for Ontario teachers. Then TA came in and did a recapitalization of the company, bought our small position and bought part of Ontario teachers' position in the deal. And then last year, we bought the majority of the business back. And Jim Ryan is the CEO He was the head of sales and then COO under our ownership. That's a good example because one of the things I feel very proud of that our team does is we bring software assets to the private equity community and to the LP community. Flexera was a division of Macrovision, thing called Rovi. And the company, we had to improve the margin. We had to make it an investable private equity asset. That was part of our value add. And then once you're in that, you're in private equity. I want to turn a little bit to the Tomo Bravo business. You were at some time ago the young star that Carl brought into the partnership. And I'm curious how that has colored how you've thought about the team that you work with today. Well, I feel a big sense of responsibility of being able to provide a similar opportunity to all of our colleagues. Almost I feel a sense of anxiety and stress over that. And that's one of the reasons why we keep the investment team as small as possible. One is what I described before, giving people big jobs, and it's a better way of making decisions. You don't need more than five or six people in the deal team. You don't need 20. What would they do? They even have a hard time catching up with one another. But the other thing you do is you have the chance of recruiting the best people that want to be future leaders. And we do that by as we continue to be lucky and put up good results, we're able to establish in this great software industry that's growing beyond our growth rate. We're able to establish products like mid-market buyouts that AJ Rohde, Hudson Smith are huge leaders and have become some of the best mid-market private equity leaders out there. We're able to establish that. We do the same thing with Explore, our smaller buyout product. We do the same thing in credit. 
and so on and so forth. And there will be many, many of these opportunities to get these talented young adults to have a journey that it'll be their own journey. It won't be mine. Things are different, but it might be better. But they'll still have the opportunity to, to lead and to be able to do great things. Within the vertical of software where you play, you've had these opportunities for these people to take over a mid-market, a credit. Do you think about extending horizontally into other industries if, in fact, that's what's needed for someone to be able to have that leadership position? The incredible place we're in is we don't really need to because software is going there. Software itself is extending into becoming the business. I was having a lunch yesterday where this venture capitalist was asking if we would invest in business models where the business model may be you're selling a financial service, but you're a software company instead of renting your product. Of course we will, because that's value-based pricing. That basically causes your product to be priced a lot higher potentially than selling a license. It's like being in the consulting business versus in the getting carry <laughs> business in alternatives. So it's taking us there. I know you recently completed a SPAC transaction. I'm curious your perspective on SPACs as a mechanism for bringing companies into the public markets. I think SPACs are awesome. They've been around for a long time. There is a reason why they boomed recently. And the reason is a good one, which is the financial industry is innovating in order to be able to absorb the technology innovations that are there. And this is one such innovation is there's so many potential IPOs, there's so many unicorns in software and technology, there's so many deals to be done. How about if we put that one in the mix in a bigger way? As with anything that grows that quickly, there are a bunch of bad deals in the SPAC market. There are things that absolutely don't make sense, but society will learn and they'll throw the bad ones out and they'll throw the bad sponsors out. People in the financial markets, they reward performance ultimately. And when it's not there, they just won't back the bad ones again. And that'll be it. We believe in the following principles in a SPAC. Let's marry the best of both worlds. The beauty of being a public company that energizes employees actually, and provides these securities to the retail investor as well. But marry that with what has made private equity great. And we call it the RADA principle. Make it be for real companies of certain revenue size. The R, A, accountability. If the good thing about a SPAC is that you could put projections, I love projections, you do too, investors need them. How does even management think about projections? A really important part of investing in a venture. Give me those numbers that match the theme that you're talking to me about. We tell companies, I don't understand anything without numbers when they start a presentation. So make it accountable. Have the SPAC target come back in every reporting cycle to the original projections they gave the street and explain the variances, why they're doing better or worse, and have the SPAC sponsor do the same on their next SPAC. And T, have transparency. Who is the sponsor? Put up the entire track record of the sponsor. And if the sponsor doesn't have track record, that could be okay too, because maybe an investor says, maybe they're really hungry, or maybe they'll get lucky for the first time. I kind of like that. And then finally is alignment. Half the SPAC sponsor put hard money down in the deal, just like in private equity, a GP puts in a percentage into the fund. How have you thought about any pushback you may have had from investors in your funds about doing a deal that has effectively a different type of capital base behind it? Investors are right in pointing out that they wanted the GP focused on the business that they're paying the money to do. And there's a lot of money they're paying. What we have explained to our partners is this is the business that we do. Our mission is to help these innovative software companies achieve close to their full potential and do it again and again. By being in this market, we're not adding any work because we're already in these verticals. We're already talking to these companies. We're already interfacing with them. This is what we do. This adds value to our core business. 
and it makes us more informed and better at public markets. And we have so many candidates that will be public companies. That's going to be a way for us in the future of exits. So it adds to what we do. It puts us more in that community. It gives us a better brand. It allows us to talk to more people, which improves our private equity business. As the markets have grown to have more of an appreciation for the value of these software businesses, the power of technology, and competitions come in, how have you addressed what's ascending multiples and more competitors looking at the types of businesses you'd like to buy? The challenge that we have is the prevailing market multiples, public multiples of software companies. The challenge that we have is not competition right now. And it's worked. You can look at the negatives, but also positives. And the fact that valuations have been high, some claim too high, actually is a barrier to entry. It keeps big players that could be new players or new entrants out of this market. There should be 20 or 30 private equity firms doing large buyouts in software. It's a great place to be. But if you have to pay 10 times forward revenue, for a company that does 5% EBITDA margin at scale, and you don't have a track record of having delivered 40 to 50% margin while growing that business, an investment committee is not going to take that risk, and they shouldn't take that risk. We were lucky that we started our first equity check was $25 million to do this kind of work. But now that you prove it, you can keep moving forward. Then how do we deal with the prevailing valuations is two ways. One is... We buy growth. That's going back to our prior point. We have not bought a 5% grower vertical market software company in a long time. And that's what we all we used to do 20 years ago. We're buying the more innovative, number one, number two player, higher growth companies. The second way we deal with it is we have had to improve the margin that we deliver. Our best-in-class metrics before were 25% EBITDA margins. Now we're getting up to 50. Ellie May got up to 60%. So both trying to get better and buying the right thing for today as well. As you look across the competitive landscape in the industry, there are a fair number of the original founders that are, let's just say, a little more like Carl's Vintage than yours. And I'm curious, as you think about the next five or 10 years for Toma Bravo, how do you position yourselves when you see the potential for some of the other private equity firms to have to have significant succession transitions? First, I really like the, if you can call it a prior or earlier generation, many of them are my mentors, just out of the goodness of their hearts, really. I have an incredible appreciation for what they meant at the time. They invented the private equity industry. Sometimes I see them and I go, bye, thank you for inventing the private equity industry. (laughs) I really appreciate it. (laughs) And it's true. And our role is, I see it as, what kind of next generation private equity firm are we? And how we adapt to society that way. It's more with the times. So we have a lot of young people, We run a much flatter organization. We don't have an org chart because everybody knows what their job is. We look to transfer ownership over time. I think that's consistent with how the world is working now and how people want it to work as well, which is a totally different world than in the 80s when you had to break up these huge corporations that were potentially abusing their power over their shareholders, and you had to break up these divisions and and run it differently. From all the experience you've had over the years with lots of different LPs in your funds, and then some of the work you've done on investment committees yourself, what are some of the key, their lessons or subtle insights that you've picked up that you think would help LPs to understand from your perspective? I think the most important thing is understanding the culture of a firm. So I really respect those LPs when in an at-work environment, in the office environment, they would spend the time walking around the office and having some impromptu meetings. Hearing what people are talking about on phone calls and in the office is key. If you walk around Toma Bravo, most of our colleagues will be talking to companies about sales plans and quotas 
and they may be on a board call, it's a lot of operational talk. If we say that that's one of the keys to our value add, then that's what people should be talking about in the office. They shouldn't be talking about financings and financial engineering. And that could happen. So I think that's a key one. I think when we were getting started, when we became Toma Bravo in 2008, our numbers were, our liquid numbers were good, but there were not enough liquidity events in software to establish a track record. But we saw as a GP clearly how the portfolio was absolutely amazing in terms of future returns. And I think that most LPs, given how many good choices they have, they didn't want to look at that. They didn't have the time or maybe they have better choices or what have you. And the few that did, because we ended up, we tried to raise a billion, we ended up raising 822.5. That tells you we're looking for every penny, like every 500,000 we would take. <laughs> the few that did, that fund returned four net and then it gave about a 1x multiple in co-invest that was great economics and produced great returns. And it helped many of them establish other programs that were great. So I think really, really understanding the portfolio and how it's doing is important work. What do you think Toma Bravo looks like five or 10 years from now? In five years, we're going to be double the size. We have $80 billion under management, and we can tell how the portfolio is going to do. We have it on the ground. We see where our space is going. We see that we're creating some white space in the large software deals. And we actually need the capital because the industry needs it for us to buy these number one, number two players. They're growing at 20% compounded. So we're going to be double the size. We are going to grow as an investment team, but not commensurate with that growth, with the philosophy of providing people full opportunity to be future leaders. And we will be forming other products that align to what is the best financing alternative for these companies. What do you think some of those products will be? Could be longer dated or permanent capital vehicles which is becoming more popular and more interesting now, given the conversation we had about exits and how do you do that. And we have some in the industry that we can also emulate in terms of what they've done and learn from that and see what fits our culture. It could be regional products, whether in Europe or in Asia, as Asia is maturing in tech. And now there will be opportunities to buy companies that have enough of an operating history that fits our, our framework. And it can be other forms of financing as well. Charlando, I want to take a second and talk a bit about some of your philanthropic activities. I know this always comes from a personal place. And at what point in time did you decide that it was important for you to take some of the success you've had and find ways to give it back? I started in philanthropy, I like to think relatively early, with causes that were personal to me. That's right. That's how you go about these things. The catalyst for starting the Bravo Family Foundation was Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. And I had just come back with Jennifer James, our COO, from a fundraising trip in Asia. And the hurricane hit when I was in Tokyo, the last day I was there. When I got back, I couldn't reach any friends, any family, completely. There's no communication. And a day after, I was able to talk to my dad and things were not good. And my brother befriended a reporter in the island and on day two, post-hurricane, she told him that there's a shelter in this town called Lares, which is close to where I grew up, where the mayor said, I only have two days left of food and water for 35 people. And then I'm looking at CNN and I'm seeing what's going on and what's the governor saying. I remember calling my cousin and asking him, can you drive? all the way from San Juan to the West Coast, or is it true that everything's blocked and you can't do it? He's an adventure travel person. He runs an adventure travel company in Puerto Rico. <laughs> he knows it. And he did it. He said, yeah, you can do it. So we responded back and we said, well, if you can get this to the mayor, we will be there in a day and a half with what the mayor needs to hold it together. And when I got there, it was a just a completely shocking experience from all these memories. I had high school friends that came over to say hello. I mean, it's just a, that I hadn't seen in 30 years. So it's just a, an amazing thing. But what hit me was that we were the only ones there at the time. 
So we did, for a period of time, make a difference. And what I tell young people in philanthropy is, remember, if you don't do anything about it, nobody's going to do anything about it. You can make a big difference. And once we were there, I saw the beauty of hardworking people that I remember, but also how society in Puerto Rico is so divided in wealth. Puerto Rico is one of the most unequal places in the world, actually, along with five other African continent countries. And given the opportunities that were given to me, I said, let's go fix that. Let's see if we can provide an environment where all talented young adults can have some meaningful opportunities for personal and professional growth. And that started us in this journey. And once you're in it, forget it. And it's much harder than private equity, by the way. <laughs> That's wonderful. Orlando, I want to turn to a couple of closing questions. But first, what's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Playing tennis. I still love it, but for fun and not competitively. So do you struggle to find people that you can play with at your level? I'm not that good anymore, but yeah, you know, <laughs> it's, it's crazy how many good players there are. And you know who I love hitting with? I love hitting with kids. Like 14, 15-year-olds that are really trying to compete. They're so good. And that's the players in San Juan that I learned from. That's what would happen. These great players that were in their 50s would come play with me after work, and I, I just loved it. What's your most important daily habit? Working out. One hour a day, alone. It's probably more important to be alone for that hour than, than whatever I do exercise-wise. <laughs> What's your biggest personal pet peeve? Personal pet peeve is when people say, you should. You should do this. You should. But I don't want to. Or maybe, <laughs> or maybe you think I should. <laughs> it's mainly a, mainly a communication issue. Along the lines of the other one, to be totally honest. It's like, okay, don't be totally honest. <laughs> <laughs> How about your biggest investment pet peeve? I have so many. I call it the deal talk. All the deal, it has its own language almost of when you're looking at a deal, you're competing for a deal, and you ask questions like, well, how many bidders are there? And the answers are, it's between a handful and a, but why can't you just say seven? What am I going to do with that? Or five? It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> or how's our bid? It's undifferentiated. But say that you cannot say, or tell me how our bid is. <laughs> but there's that own, right? That own community's language is really super annoying. Okay, how about another investment pet peeve? The big one is how so many market participants explain the market as if it's true. So for example, when they say, well, the reason this time is not good for IPOs is although the market is up, that's the secondary market, but the primary market is struggling right now because we're about to go into the summer and many portfolio managers are going to be taking the summer off as if that's true and that it spreads around and people tell this story <laughs> that absolutely makes no sense. You know, hedge funds don't sleep. They're highly competitive. They'll look at any deal at any time. So do we. It doesn't make any sense. But people kind of start talking about this and almost believing it and behaving as if it's true. So what two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? We spoke about Carl Thoma, Marcel Bernard. I'll add one is Antonio Ortiz, my tennis coach in Puerto Rico. One of the beauties about the sport is how close you get to a coach, especially if you're with him for a long time. And he taught me not to take myself seriously and enjoy the journey. I remember we were in this tennis tournament, my first tennis tournament in California that he took me to. Long trip, right? We go to Los Gatos, 14 and under national. And I had a match at 8 a.m. the next day. And we had just gotten there, and I wanted to go out and have some fun in the pool with a bunch of friends in the tennis thing. And I came to the room sheepishly, some motel, and I said, Antonio, can I stay out a little later? And he was like, are you crazy? You stay out a long time. That's why you're here, to make friends and enjoy the journey. And that was nice. And I carry that till today. It's good deal or bad deal. Enjoy what you do, and, and don't take yourself seriously. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? Yeah, my dad... He had a very small business in Mayaguez, and through example, I would see how hard he worked. I mean, he was just always working, and sometimes I would just come see him at the office, and that was the life, and that's an important, a really important role model for me. 
And my mom, she always taught me through repetition. She would sit there when I was doing homework and it's repeated again, go through it again, again and again. And that's how tennis was. And that's how I still think today. All right, Orlando, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? Work-life balance. I worked way too hard when I was young. I could have traveled more when I was young. I could have enjoyed college more when I was young versus just tennis and studying. I wish I would have spent more time on the fun aspect of it. As I went through life, I didn't have that much work-life balance until I had to make some changes to that. And those changes were so good for the work part of it because the more I put life into it, the more I was forced to delegate and the more my partners rose to be the leaders they are today. We have the managing partners we have today are just running these incredible sectors and it happened because I needed to back off in order to have even a better career. So the work-life balance, yeah, that's the one. Orlando, so fascinating and thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you so much. This was great, Ted. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. Thank you.